I was thinking about the whole time I read this chapter, and it might be showing my age. I don't know if any of you guys watched the Jetsons when you were kids. Yes. That was the idealized world where people worked like mm. two hours a day. Well, that's not happening. <laughs> not yet, buddy. George Jetson was born July 31st, 2022. <laughs> He's turning one in a couple weeks. <laughs> Happy birthday, George Jetson. Happy birthday. are listening to the intervention podcast it's nick here with levi and steve and we've also got mike from turn leftist and we're back with another entry into our mark series and tonight we're going to be tackling chapters 10 and 11 probably i don't know it'll be surprising if we make it out of chapter 10 because it is like i don't know 100 pages or something like that a lot to discuss and i think a lot of relevant stuff to discuss but with that i'll just turn it right over to levi for our introduction and we'll get into the discussion in this reading Marx expounds on the importance of class struggle in England through the early 1800s as an historian. Marx continues to be rather vague in his prescriptions for change and, like he does in the Communist Manifesto, continues to argue what capitalism, quote, therefore produces, above all, are its own gravediggers, end quote. At times, he calls for reform and valorization of the factory inspector appear rather meek or, at the very least, less than revolutionary. It's a common assertion that neither Marx nor Engels anticipated the adaptability of capitalism, but I hope we can push beyond this simple refrain by considering the work of British Marxist historian E.P. Thompson. In the six-page preface to his magisterial 1963 work, The Making of the English Working Class, a history which clocks in at over 800 pages, rivaling Capital Volume 1, Thompson wrote, quote, Class is an historical phenomena. I do not see class as a structure, nor even as a category, but as something which, in fact, happens, end quote. Thompson, an avowed Marxist and ex-communist, understood the materialist position and posited, quote, class experience is largely determined by the productive relations into which men are born or enter involuntarily. But he emphasized, quote, class happens when some men, and he did mean men, a legitimate, though not disemboweling criticism of his work, as a result of common experience, inherited or shared, feel and articulate the identity of their interests as between themselves and as against other men whose interests are different from and usually opposed to theirs. Thompson defined class beyond the structured individuals found themselves ensconced within. Instead, he understood class according to a united struggle against a common enemy. Thompson's intervention centered agency over structure. The working class stood witness to its own creation. Thompson articulated, though he did not invent, this approach to history, which became known as history from below, people's history, history from the bottom up, and guerrilla history. This approach to class struggle, according to some, stands in conflict with that of Marx, Engels, and many later Marxists. It may even spark controversy on this panel or among our listeners. But Thompson's theory is often misunderstood. Academics and intellectuals dismiss his working-class agency-centric approach to history as foolish romanticism. I would argue his methods cause consternation among academics and intellectuals because his history didn't aim to appease the academy, but to empower the movements of his day. To Thompson, history never dies. 
The powerful obscure their victory as, quote, common sense. What we might consider the losers of the past, in Thompson's view of history, empower modern resistance. He wrote, quote, their crafts and traditions may have been dying. Their hostility to the new industrialism may have been backward looking. Their communitarian ideals may have been fantasies. Their insurrection conspiracies may have been foolhardy. But in spite of all of this, he concluded, quote, In the lost cause of the Industrial Revolution, we may discover insights into social evils which we have yet to cure. These so-called losers espoused, quote, exceptionally high valuation upon egalitarian and democratic values, end quote. To his critics, he sneered, quote, although we often boast our democratic way of life, these critical years are far too often forgotten or slurred over. Posterity, the dominant language of progress, continues to this day to push the value of these losers and the cruelty of the victors into the dustbin of history. Thompson's famous preface concludes with the following, quote, Causes which were lost in England might, in Asia or Africa, yet be won, end quote. An optimistic pronouncement on the world of 1963 that rings true today, if even more urgent than before. As I've been clear from the very beginning of this project, though Marx wrote Capital with an academic audience in mind, Marx, just like Thompson, always kept a foot in the movement and understood his writing as an act of resistance in itself. Marx is thus recording, living in, and making history all at once. Let's keep that in mind as we consider the working day. We'll also cover chapter 11 uh, if we get to it. So I'm Levi. Let's go around, share any immediate thoughts on Thompson and Marx as, as history before we begin discussing the substance of Marx's Capital, Volume 1, Chapters 10 through 11. I want to go back to that concept you brought up of working class agency and this idea that maybe some people would push back against Thompson's formulation. I mean, I don't even think Marx would necessarily push back against that formulation. Marx would have seen the structures which could have led people to identifying as a class, but it wasn't necessarily a predetermined outcome, right? Like men still have to make their own history. And I think, you know, we see a lot of people in America today, and I'm sure in Europe and beyond, where you know this person is a working class person. But that doesn't necessarily mean they have to subsume and adopt working class politics, right? They can get lost in the sauce of the bourgeois ideology and drive a car around with a don't tread on me kind of sticker, all that kind of shit, right? Like making $20,000 a year. From a working class versus capitalist perspective, it doesn't matter that there are they are by definition working class in terms of that overall class struggle because they haven't taken the politics that would empower them to actually fight on the side of the interests of their class. If we're talking about it as like a powerful social formation that requires agency to actually be effective. I think that is something that we can see to be just objectively true within our own life experiences, right? And the people we interact with. So Levi, this is the first I've heard of this Thompson guy. Would you say that he's like to some other historian what Marx is to Hegel, where he flips it on his head and said, instead of looking at history from the point of view of the quote unquote winners, we should look at it from the point of view of these working class people and invented this people's history perspective, like you were saying? 
which is great because obviously that should go hand in hand with Marks, you know, flipping Hegel on his head as well. Um, it was there like a prominent historian that Thompson came to like overtake, at least in the minds of anti-imperialist people. So Thompson's position within the historical profession is rather complicated. So I don't think he would ever claim that he invented the concept of people's history because he would immediately say that people within the movement have been writing their own history since the existence of history itself. So he would more or less claim that he was taking the movement's history and elevating it to the status of academic history. And then to even put a finer point on that, he would also be the first to point at individuals like W.E.B. Du Bois in his Black Reconstruction as an example of what he was doing written decades before. I don't think that he would have considered himself uh, in that sort of trajectory, uh, but he is often positioned that way within the historical profession by people that we wouldn't necessarily ally ourselves with, that he brought to heart this notion of social history. But when it's sort of put in that framework, what you really need to be aware of is that they're taking away the act of Thompson as an activist. So he was not that interested in being well-known within academia for creating a new method or a new model. His interest was always and firmly placed in furthering the working class movement. I guess to follow up on like on Nick's point, you just have to look at what politicians do as well, right? They, they use religion, I guess now in our time, the, the culture war, all these things to convince people that they should ignore their material conditions and follow them, right? Especially the right in this country, you see that. In England with, with Brexit and with other things, where my family's from is extremely working class and you know predominantly socialist but you see a lot of people because of brexit and because of the rhetoric on immigration they voted for boris johnson the i I don't know if they'll continue to vote for the conservatives but you know again you see them kind of abandoning their conditions and, and their their class to to just as nick kind of insinuated they get caught up in the rhetoric and and just completely ignore their their position they should have solidarity with their class rather than just with some political ideals. All of that is rather complicated in terms of how history is written and how we understand it. Because we want to give agency to the working class to understand their own movement, which is something that we're within. And we don't want to claim that somebody needs to go in and teach the working class what they already understand. But there are other material pulls on them at the same time. Like fascism in the right wing doesn't make up complaints. They just provide solutions that are not conducive to actual working class revolution and new conditions that wouldn't just reproduce the same problems. This is a similar issue that we sort of ran into when thinking about Gramsci he's talking about a common sense and how there needs to be a sort of intellectual response to the common sense that needs to be based in a Marxist framework. But there's a difference between tailism and commandism. I think what you're describing is also, it's called tailism, right? Where you tail the, the people, because it's like you're talking about the mass line thing. Um, it's where you are behind the people or like, you know, reiterating the, the cultural struggle as opposed to like trying to reform it to be more progressive. But then there's also, I, th- I don't want to say it's called headism. I think that's, that's the wrong, but it's like, it's the opposite thing. It's like literally, like you're saying, being too condescending, like you're too far ahead of the people and you're trying to make them progress too much. And I guess it spawns too much of a reaction 
and your revolution crumbles. And it's funny because whether or not you are a tailist or a headist or whatever the proper term is, uh, seems to only be determined after the fact by how successful or not your revolutionary project was. I'll allow myself to sound stupid and say that it was headism, um, but it was it's commandism. That's what it is. Headism it is. As intellectuals, which I guess speaking for myself, we don't want to push individuals beyond what they're willing to accept either. So it's always this really difficult balance. Yeah. And I think that's what Thompson's injection was. He's writing a history that shows that the working class is capable of coming to those conclusions throughout history. And so therefore it's empowering and they can do it again. And I was actually thinking about this today a little bit because we were, it's a relationship in tension, right? It's a dialectic between tailism and commandism in a lot of ways, isn't it? Like as you're, there's probably some contradictory actions that a, you know, an organizer can take in that and you try to figure out, you know, kind of the line to ultimately synthesize on around that, right? The flip side is, is that especially with domination of media by the capitalist class and how pervasive some of this ideology is like, and then it goes back to like this idea of principles. It's like you all, you want to meet working class people where they're at. You know, we talked about it on our Palestine episode. It's like, we also don't want to sacrifice, like there's certain lines that we're not willing to meet people at like Palestinian lives, trans existence and stuff like that. You know, maybe there's a way to approach that conversation, but like meeting someone where they're at shouldn't involve compromising what makes you a socialist or a communist, either on economic or social issues. I think one way to understand this is to actually get into the text Mm -hmm. of Capital and understand it as a text written in 1863. We can all agree that Marx was also not just writing this to be an academic. We have to think about this as a political text in itself, in a moment, which is kind of hard to do because it's very theoretical. But this is the most concrete chapter we've had so far. So I think it'll be easier for us to understand it that way. Yeah. So this is something we've talked about a lot already. But beginning at the end of chapter 10, Marx makes an allusion to the power of collective working class action without allies at page 416. Quote, For protection against the serpent of the vampire capitalists and their agonies, the workers have to put their heads together and, as a class, compel the passing of a law, an all-powerful social barrier, by which they can be prevented from selling themselves and their families into slavery and death. In the place of the pompous catalog of the inalienable rights of man, there steps the magnus magna carta of the legally limited working day. Writing as he did from 1867, Marx saw the benefits of bourgeois allies in gaining concessions for the working class to create a space to further empower the movement. In the introduction to our 1899 pamphlet, published 32 years after Capital, Reformer Revolution, Rosa Luxemburg wrote, quote, The question of reform or revolution of the final goal and the movement is but the question of petty bourgeois or proletarian character of the labor movement. Pamphlet is rather short and worth a read, but I found the following quotation a sufficient summary of her entire argument. Quote, Those who pronounce themselves in favor of the method of legislative reform in place of and in contrast to the conquest of political power and social revolution do not really choose a more tranquil, calmer, and slower road to the same goal, but a different goal. Our program becomes not the realization of socialism, 
but the reform of capitalism. Not the suppression of the wage-labor system, but the diminution of exploitation. That is, the suppression of the abuses of capitalism instead of the suppression of capitalism itself. All of this brings to mind for me an American left-wing activist I spoke to at length. He had become radicalized during the 1960s, had once believed an American socialist revolution was right around the corner, and had scoffed at the reform-oriented gains of European social democracies. In confidence, making me swear I'd never tell anyone else their identity, they told me that they now looked back on their political life and admitted that they envied the reforms his European cohort had achieved. This in comparison to the hard life he continued to live as he grew old in an aggressively austere United States. It's tempting to frame the entire chapter as reform versus revolution, since Marx's ultimate demand for the working day is a modest reform, a modest Magna Carta. But does this framing diminish more important issues at play? Is there a hard limit to reform? A point at which it actually provides support for capitalism? Or is there something more complicated at work here? If you look at the political program only from the perspective of the goal is to limit the working day, then you can kind of just get into this narrow headspace where he's only talking about reform. But he's talking about this as a prerequisite step to something more. I mean, that's where your theoretical lens comes into play over the long view, right? Like, well, this is something that's good and we can keep things going within capitalism, right? But if it's revolution and reform is kind of a part of the process towards that because revolutions don't happen overnight, then I think the way you look at that situation becomes different because you look at this as like a necessary stepping stone to getting to a revolutionary point this theory and then concrete actions successfully deployed, you see a building up to it, right? Rather than just a spontaneous uprising, which gets crushed. You see something that results where maybe it actually does defend itself, or at least has the chance to defend itself over the long term. Through which theoretical lens, a reformist versus a revolutionist, how you look at this kind of problem, and then where you go from there with it. Is it really important for Marxists to have a theoretical answer to theory versus revolution. Don't we really just want to be concerned with the conditions on the ground in the specific location rather than have an answer to that question? Sure, but you could look at it from the perspective of like, how do we improve it such that it kind of goes into the service of like a longer goal? Because we know if we don't actually suppress capitalism, as like you said in that Luxembourg quote, that this is just going to come back again. So like, how do we organize around this specific issue to Definitely address the material condition, but then perpetuate a movement beyond it, right? Such that it just doesn't stagnate after like kind of like a minor victory that gets rolled back later on. And it's not just stagnation, really, is it? I mean, I think in general, talking in the developed world where, where we live, working conditions are generally better than what Marx describes in this chapter. There's not nine-year-olds at work anymore right now. Not yet. Well, that's what I was about to say. I mean, I guess that's been through reform. but. What's happening now? How many states are trying to like reverse child labor laws now? So reform can always be reversed, as Nick said, if there's nothing backing, you know, and, and some movement behind ma making sure that things don't stagnate or reverse, which I think uh, in a lot of cases, things are starting to reverse in this country. I think the reform versus revolution question really goes back to the adaptability of capitalism that you're talking about earlier. And when we start talking about things like the working day and why we limit the working day, 
because it is to the long-term benefit of the capitalists even to have their workers be less exploited because then they're able to purchase goods and do all the things that are needed to sustain that capitalist system. And then when you have these short-term capitalists overexploiting their workers and the workers can no longer function the way they're supposed to, you have this crisis. And it is sort of this prisoner's dilemma or what do you call it? The tragedy, the commons kind of bullshit where individual capitalists are like the employers are incentivized to overexploit their employees, even though long-term it would be better not to. And so the social democracy, like Scandinavian model uh, that your friend was talking about envying over the course of a lifetime seems to adapt capitalism to that problem where it gives them enough social programs and enough of the comforts that allow them to be exploited and labor supporting an imperialist system at the end of the day. Yes. And then you contrast that because that's always the difficult thing for us. People who are like sino optimistic in any sense to support China and who is doing like what liberals and anarchists usually will call us similar things. Like they say that China is just like a capitalist neoliberal kind of similar to a social democracy model at best, but it's like they had a revolution. And I don't think that's a coincidence that they have win-win relationships with global South countries like in Africa as opposed to exploitative relationships. I just think that's a reflection of how they arrived at those different economic models. Yeah. And only the future can tell us whether climate change and the increasing austerity of the United States and what that will do to the military support that also kind of holds up to Scandinavian countries as well with their imperialist model, whether they will become more austere as well. And like you said, it's like this person over the course of a lifetime was revolutionary and thought that there was a real possibility to have a socialist revolution in Western countries. And then when that was proven wrong, they ended up, at least on a personal level, envying the social democracy model, the Scandinavian model. And I can understand that. I can definitely understand that. You want fucking healthcare, right? Yeah. 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 But again, that just proves that capitalism adapted that way, but it still will not work long term. And I think we can all see that coming. There's never going to be a reform approved that's going to hurt capitalism, is there? You're going to get these little victories and, and little things that protect you a little bit, and, and, but never really, to your point, Mike, no one's going to approve anything in Western governments that's going to hurt the capitalist machine. And I guess the caveat to my point, I guess I was generally talking about working conditions in factories, because I, you know, I think if you look at a low-level person in a corporation, they're probably still working 16 hours a day and getting paid for eight hours, right? The, the conditions there, I don't think have changed at all. To sort of jump around this chapter again and to sort of touch on where Marx actually argues about this. No matter what Marx might argue is the benefit of certain bourgeois reforms, he certainly sees a limit to orienting a movement around the bourgeoisie. He wrote on page 405, quote, Law of capital is the equal exploitation of labor power by all capitalists, end quote. But on page 409, Marx expanded on a contradictory phenomena plaguing anti-capitalist working-class movements. Quote, After the factory magnates have resigned themselves and submitted to the inevitable, capital's power of resistance gradually weakened. While at the same time, the working class's power of attack grew with the number of its allies. End quote. Even at this early point in industrial history, which there's no way Marx would have known he was at the early point, Marx noted that incremental legislative progress in the direction of workers' rights gained with the number of cooperative bourgeois allies. What he doesn't state explicitly, though he heavily infers, is that these bourgeoisie ended up supporting these reforms because they ended up stabilizing the structure of capitalism, as Mike remarked. 
to break it down, as the state is empowered to curb some excesses of capital's abuse, giving the working class some material benefits, thus they work to secure comforts for the working class within the system rather than risk overthrowing it. So considering this, what is the usefulness of this history to Marx? Why is he telling us this history in this book? What is he arguing for? How might this history, which might continue to play out, be of use to us today? Because these powers play out on their own without push or pull, because there is something inconvenient at play here, the specifics are just not that important to the movement. Or are they? To say it another way, is this sort of reflexive bourgeois pushing of reform always going to lead to a lessening burden on the working class in order to save capitalism? Or is there a point where even the bourgeois is not going to be willing to push these reforms to their own detriment? I mean, I think we're at that point. Or at least sitting here on July 15th of 2023, it appears that we're at that point. Because I think if there was some recognition that something needed to be done, they would have let Bernie go through in 2016 to be the new imperialist FDR. I don't want to say that because FDR was imperialist as well, but like, I think that just goes to show like just a complete inability to do anything at this point. Like it's almost jumped the shark where it can't even fucking save itself because it's so focused upon short term profit and every mechanism is wound up in that ideology that they literally cannot escape from that. Look at the student loan thing. We still don't have fucking health care. They can't do anything. Even our so-called working class representatives are either just total figureheads with no power of anything at all, or they're ineffectual. I, I just don't think anything's coming. Don't you wish that there was actually like a cabal? If this really makes me wish that like the people worshiping the, the owl at the fucking Bohemian Grove it really makes me wish there was like five people who were controlling it all and could say, look, we actually do have to give these people some health care. Uh, we actually do have to like tackle climate change or this whole thing's going to topple over. But like, it's very obvious that like the conspiracies are not true because if Klaus Schwab and George Soros and the World Economic Forum really had that much power as the right wingers think, like they would have actually fixed a bunch of things right now or we would at least be on track. But like, no, it literally is just anarchy of the market on the individual capitalist level. That's just where we're at. I mean, we can talk about like the history that led up to this point and like we're facing, I think, or like the resurgence of some of the conditions like Steve was talking about with like child labor and stuff like that, that Mark Marx was talking about. But the development of the state and imperialism and global conditions have changed. I think we've seen through Marx the benefits of some bourgeois reform, also the limits of it. And but I also think we need to look at what our conditions are right now. And like nobody on that side, from what I can see, is coming to help at this point. They're not even willing to use the rhetoric of no. at this point. It's really concerning. Yeah. If I were a major capitalist, I'd be pushing them. Can you at least give these people some crumbs? Like they're getting more and more pissed off. And Biden, he tries to use like the rhetoric because I see some of the tweets and things like that. But no one's fucking buying it because you're not giving any crumb to at least back up what your intern on Twitter is stating. This is the history and we're living in a different era. I just have through this chapter written footnotes of like 
read Lenin to expound upon this because there's allusions to the role of the state and there's hints at where this can go in terms of the working class's relationship within the imperial core. He doesn't hint at it directly, but you could see where you follow that to our position now as working class people in the U.S. And it's just like you have to read Lenin because I think state and rev is like a really good supplement to understanding the working class dynamics even later on. And like then we, we would still have to update that. Even what they offer is just still just a crumb to keep the wheels on, even at this point in time. At the end of the day, barring revolution, they're never going to be like some kind of neutral arbiter based on morality or human rights or anything like that. And now we're just at the apotheosis of it. <laughs> I think you made a good point earlier when you said like, it could, they should just let Bernie, whoever the they is. Like, again, I just wish the cabal was a real thing. Because if the they existed, they would have let Bernie win because it would have been like the sensible thing to do. And it's like, but now we're at the point where, did you guys even look into the student loan forgiveness thing that Biden did get through? That's a perfect reaction, Levi. You just rolled your eyes as hard as you possibly could. And it's like, literally, I saw someone say something about it online. I looked at it and it was more than a paragraph long as opposed to like, like to describe who gets it. And I'm like, oh, so they just like means tested it. Means tested. Fuck you. It right? doesn't mean yeah. anything to anyone. Like, go <laughs> fuck yourself. Like, it's exactly what everyone expected. <laughs> means tested. God, the guy damn. who could do it all with a stroke of a pen did like the bullshit, like jump through a bunch of hoops for a few people. But Libs was just like still touted it as tried. like, it's exactly the perfect thing. Like, go fuck yourself. He's playing 3D chess. <laughs> Surprise, he dies at the end <laughs> before he makes the final move. Worked for Kennedy. <laughs> to put a new bin on this, on page 341, Marx argues the need for limiting working hours are the result of cultural differences. Quote, the worker needs time in which to satisfy his intellectual and social requirements and the extent and the number of these requirements is conditioned by the general level of civilization. Now, this is my translator's version of that phrase, the general level of civilization, going on. The length of the working day therefore fluctuates within boundaries, both physical and social. So the general concept in theory makes sense. Today, for example, an individual needs to be paid enough in order to afford a cellular phone as part of their basic amenities. It needs to be in high school up to the age of 18 in order to be considered valuable for the workforce. What gives me pause is Marx's use of the phrase, quote, conditioned by the general level of civilization. What does Marx mean by the general level of civilization? What's being provided for here? Does he mean the progress of capitalism? I've heard that it means the progress of class struggle, but that doesn't seem quite right this early in the history. Is this problematic when considering international solidarity based on human needs rather than needs determined by the general level of civilization? I guess what I'm getting at in terms of the former conversation is if the general level of civilization is something that Marx is willing to hand over to the concept of winning the working day, isn't that really just the release valve at work? That people are going to fight for things that they want for themselves at the expense of international working class solidarity. I just want to add real quick in the other version that I have, general civilization is replaced with physical and social bounds. That seems to open it up to a little bit more interpretation, thinking about like external impacts and what defines those physical and social bounds. So 
general civilization seems to be like a, especially with when we factor in like when and where he's writing from, does seem to be like a very Eurocentric framing, right? But physical and social bounds to me allows the opportunity to kind of speak to more external impacts, right? Like what's driving these physical and social bounds, right? Rather than just, I have a definition of civilization, which is again, Eurocentric. I think that my question still stands because social bounds can be defined within one's community on a very small scale. Like I deserve as a white man to have this much time free to myself. Therefore I have my wife do the cooking and cleaning so that I have this time to myself at home. And there's a certain level of capitalist reform that might be willing to give me that time, knowing that it creates division within the working class between me and my wife or me and the lower level worker that doesn't get that time. Is this general level of civilization or however you want to interpret that translation, something that actually causes division or is it something more benign? More or less, as we get these benefits of bourgeois capitalism reforms, does it actually divide the international working class? Yeah, I don't think it would be hard at all for any of us to imagine a situation in which capitalism voices that struggle upon people and then has them deal with it on an individual level and then calls them crazy if they can't figure it out on their own. And again, it's not also hard to imagine a situation in which a socialist state could provide people with their basic needs but then still have to compete with capitalism and effectively do better than capitalism at capitalism by providing people with consumer goods that they are being propagandized to by capitalist media that tells them they should want it. Even if all their basic needs are met, even if they have things like free healthcare, free childcare, things that people in capitalist countries could only dream of, if they're only getting the message that this is the general level of civilization in capitalist countries, um, is all these fancy gadgets and things. I mean, I'm literally led to believe, like, from years of li- listening to podcasts and reading about this shit, that that's what pretty much the USSR was like, is that people actually did have a level of basic necessities that people in the US could only dream of, but then were so heavily propagandized that they still wanted a dishwasher in every house anyway, and they thought they could have both, and they came to the harsh reality that, no, you cannot. <laughs> to bring a historical reality to, I think, what you're talking about, you're referencing the Richard Nixon, Nikita Khrushchev kitchen debates of 1959, where Khrushchev and Nixon are touring a a home of the future, the American home, where they have literal dishwashers and washing machines. And Khrushchev responds that we can have this in the Soviet Union, too. We can have just as good and just as quality consumer goods. And Nixon says, Uh, as far as Mr. Khrushchev's uh, comments just now, uh, they are in the tradition we learn to expect from him of uh, speaking extemporaneously and frankly uh, whenever he has an opportunity. I can only say that if this competition, which you have just described so effectively, in which uh, you plan to outstrip us and particularly in the production of consumer goods, uh, if this competition is to do the best for both of our peoples and for people everywhere, there must be a free exchange of ideas. Uh, There are some instances where you may be ahead of us, for example, in the development of your of the thrust of your rockets for the investigation of outer space. There may be some instances, for example, color television, where we're ahead of you. And Nixon more or less 
wins that debate because Khrushchev has it on the American terms. That the USSR was not designed to provide massive selection of consumer goods. They were meant to create a standard of living. To go back to your point about, you know, you, you brought up the example of certain norms, right? And how those factor in. You have to address, I mean, they're both ideological and material in a lot of ways, but like patriarchy and racism as well, which go into this whole idea of what, like, what does civilization mean, right? To the point of like on whose terrain we're arguing, whose civilization, what defines that? Is it a patriarchal, racist, imperialist, Western like civilization that we're comparing to? Or not? Again, to draw a sort of actual historical reality to that, it's the commercial for Strom Thurmond's Senate run. You needed that job, and you were the best qualified. But they had to give it to a minority because of a racial quota. Is that really fair? Harvey Gantt says it is. Gantt supports Ted Kennedy's racial quota law that makes the color of your skin more important than your qualifications. You'll vote on this issue next Tuesday. For racial quotas, Harvey Gantt. Against racial quotas, Jesse Helms. But it's the idea of divide and conquer, that if we're going to provide benefits and civilization to the other, it means it's going to come at the cost of you, working class schlub. That's always the dilemma, right? It's trying to provide the alternative in an honest way to the dishonest. It's like the capitalists literally are the cheaters in every way. Like when you have socialists trying to provide a decent standard of living without making it on the backs of imperialist profit exploitation and extraction, or when you have, you know, socialism trying to build a standard of living for people without using gender division and like unpaid labor of just like people in the household or immigrant labor that you use to sustain that standard of living. It's like you can almost say that it's impossible to compete, but the reality is the capitalists are always doing it dishonestly and they have to shove off those externalities somewhere. And it results in all kinds of things like alienation from the human level to the physical, like alienation and mental illness in people to mass pollution and climate change. No, no, no. But I mean, I think Levi, to get to the point of your question is like where we should be arguing now rather than on like, well, this is defined by kind of like the general level of civilization, whatever that may mean. It's just like, listen, no one in the world should have to work more than eight hours a day, no matter what you are, you know, man, woman, NB, black, brown, whatever you are. So in terms of like international worker solidarity, it's like we have to somehow get through people's heads that this matters to everybody. It, it's not enough for people in America to only work eight hours a day while still resting upon overexploited, almost slave labor in the third world. These people matter too. So that's where this idea of human decency, basic human needs across the board, I think needs to come into play for us right now. And this like extremely, I mean, it was a globally connected economy at some level back then, but even more so now. And I mean, to go to your friend's point, we, we certainly can wish that we had these things that the Scandinavian model or the European model has like healthcare, right? But at the end of the day, like the French Socialist Party was leading the crushing of the Algerian revolution. Is that okay? No. I think we're looking at civilization. It's, it's almost like 
Izzy using it almost in a racist way. And I, I don't think he would have intended that, but that's kind of how we're looking at it, like develop versus, you know, the developing world. But I've just been to England. And even that, you know, again, an imperialist nation built on exploitation and extraction of resources from from other countries. But I think now, if we just look at today, they almost view America as pretty, as, as an uncivilized country. They're just amazed that, you don't get at least five weeks holiday. Everybody gets that. You don't get like six months off if you have a baby. Like you, the gun situation in this country, the, the culture stuff in this country, they're just like, you know, I, I don't know how many people ask me like, what the fuck is wrong with America? I think Europe is starting to view America as going backwards on the civilization front. And that also goes into the agency discussion that we were having before. It's like, are you choosing to take part in like the working class political experience as well. I talked to a lot of legitimate, genuine working class people that like scoff at the idea that the Europeans take off this time. It's like, why are you scoffing at the idea of a five week vacation? Why are you licking the boot that hard? It's that strange kind of assertion of pride in work. Yes. That's just so misplaced. American exceptionalism, bro. And I want to give an apology to Strom Thurmond. I actually meant Jesse Helms for making an exceptionally racist ad. You know what? Forget that. Screw them both. Fuck them both. No apologies. <laughs> Question of agency, I think, is really important when we think about history because it's who are we focusing on? What kind of histories are we telling? And as the intervention is, at least on some level, an historical podcast, I'd like to think that we're trying to show throughout history what vicious things happened and what positive recurrences have at least attempted in order to provide a means to push people to think that change actually can come about, that it's not futile to fight against this. But is there anything in this chapter that seemed to be positive beyond the modest Magna Carta that Marx calls for? Anything that makes life better for the working class is better, is good. You know, my question is, how do you sustain a movement based upon that victory? And how do you get people to see that it's not enough to just do this? It's not enough for you. And it's not enough for, you know, working people throughout the world just to achieve a shorter working day. And I think that's what Marx was hopeful for, that, you know, having the time, like specifically in this case, the time to just live not die fucking prematurely and be able to better yourself through reading, just being a better father, mother, son, or, you know, maybe your kids hopefully aren't working, but to be able to be like educated as a kid could lead to a place where people would have the time and therefore the ability to actually achieve class consciousness. I think he was maybe a little bit optimistic at the rate at which that would be achieved throughout the world. but. I still look at it very positively from that perspective, but you need that constant agitation to continue on with it. To offer a quotation that points to what you're speaking to. So on page 390, Marx argued, quote, as soon as the working class, done by the first noise and turmoil of the new system of production, had recovered its sense to any extent, it began to offer resistance. Now, of course, Marx explicitly states that this is a new system of production, but I think you could extrapolate it beyond that whenever the working class is given these sort of adjustments to their way of living, they might not offer resistance beyond that immediately until they adjust and understand that 
what they're being offered is truly not the fair deal that they deserve, that they're still being exploited on a different level. It still gets to this idea that these safety valves that are continually offered by the bourgeois do offer a respite from class struggle, and that's dangerous. We can continue saying that the, the capitalist class just isn't offering anything, but I would say that Herbert Hoover wasn't really offering much at the depths of the Great Depression until somebody came along and was willing to offer more. So I'm not completely sailing down the river that another Bernie Sanders or another FDR won't come around the bend. So how do we prevent them from just taking the wind out of the sails of this frustration? Levi, to that point, like that is why I really do think in the moment in the U.S., like as bleak and as dire as the situation is, just given where people are at, I do think we're going to need like an imperfect working class party that engages in electoral politics just to get people involved. I'm not convinced that that FDR person could necessarily come to power right now through electoral means or anything like that. But if you can popularize working class politics through the figure of an FDR person that's engaging with this process, I still think that there is some currency for that kind of approach to play right now. People are going to be engaged with this at some level because that's how they engage with politics, right? So it's like you still need that mechanism to popularize ideas. And then you're just going to show that this system really isn't for those people that haven't figured that out quite yet. So there's a place for a figure like that to come along, I think, even if he doesn't ultimately become president. I hate that there's such like a rotating trough of dullards who don't seem to like pick up on these patterns. Like there will be people right now who are really excited about fucking RFK, which to me just like speaks to the desperateness that people have for like any kind of outside person who can really speak to a populist message. But also the fact that RFK keeps getting so much attention and Cornell West gets so little shows how much the capitalists still have control of that media apparatus. They keep pushing this dumbass anti-vaxxing moron. Like he's just a fucking moron. And then they just totally ignore Cornell West. And I can see it coming a mile away. Like Cornell West is not going to get the time of day in the media. He will get something. And then there will be some kind of like bullshit thing that happens where they can say, oh, well, he got fewer votes and it actually was legit. It's like we can see we can see the rig coming from now. Like we can all see it coming. And it's just really disappointing. I don't know, Nick, if I share your optimism about some kind of working class party that could make any kind of inroads or even display the ineffectiveness of electoralism to the critical mass of people it would take for that to be really effective. I think the the dismalness of capitalism is more heartening to me in the way that they just don't have the options to press the release valves anymore. China and the U.S. now are not what the USSR and the U.S. were before because China is not in like a war economy. They actually are providing a lot more for their citizens, and there's only so much the U.S. can continue to hide that. There's the normal media where everybody thinks that China is a dystopian hellhole where everyone's being genocided and also enslaved at the same time. And then there's like the real world and it's going to, the two are going to meet and people are going to start fleeing at a certain point. And I think that America is going to have to turn something around and start providing something other than just like indoctrination and police brutality. Part of that gets back to something that was stated earlier, though. American working class people sometimes do see other cultures or other countries that are ostensibly better, and they're still not interested. I mean, they talk about how everyone should be working more, or that there's some honor in labor for 80 hours a week. And that's what really concerns me, is that I don't 
think it matters that they're being hidden. I don't think that they have this schema to understand how things actually could be better, that they don't need to be working this much, that nobody needs to be working this much. Is that how the brain drain happens? Is that where like the professionals, they catch on to how they're being propagandized and they leave and then all like the dumb chuds who are like proud of their country for nationalist reasons, even though it's against their material conditions. Those people stick around and just, it just decays and gets worse. <laughs> and then you get fascism. But to undercut something I, I just said, I think that there's something to say about the argument that the people that make this argument that they are proud to work 80 hours a day for barely conceivable wages, that could be just a loud minority. There's no reason to state that that's a majority view on any sense. Because you hear somebody say that, and there's all, at least in my circles, there's immediately somebody that responds with, what are you, stupid? <laughs> I also think that is a behavior and a thought pattern that would be easily changeable in a different superstructural environment. Right, where it's not empowered 24 hours a day on Fox right. News Radio. If it was American to be like, you know, I do great and I, you know, work 30 hours a week and they could fall into that as well. And the example I used, you have to grapple with this whole idea of Americanism and what that means and all its baggage and shit like that. There's not a lot of ideological commitment, I don't think, to that. You know, it's just Bud Light commercials and fucking football on Sunday kind of shit. If you're still into that, if you haven't got turned away by people taking the knee. The other point is, like, we're talking about a very white segment of the working class here, right? And there's a ton of black women workers that are not feeling like that necessarily, you know, and they're part of the working class. Yeah. And I think that gets to the earlier comment I was making about the divided nature of civilization mm -hmm. as an organizing principle, that we're not looking to just get white working class people on board. It's got to be international, cross race, cross culture, or else it's not going to be effective. I think to, again, just note on moments of silver lining in American politics, which have a million caveats. So just bear with me here. Everything wrong with Andrew Yang, the UBI as a concept, is something that sparked popular imagination for ending the concept of work. I do think that there is an underlying sense that people want to work less. You can state that as being exceptionally radical hot take that people don't like working. There's definitely something to be said for all of the literally pie-in-the-sky programs that liberals will pitch, knowing full well that they will never get off the ground. I don't think Andrew Yang or anyone in his camp was ever deluded enough to think he was going to get anywhere. Maybe. He, he seems like he really believes in himself. Yeah, but like He's an egomaniac. No one in the real world believes that Andrew Yang is going to get UBI implemented in the United States. Yeah, but that's still something that, again, gets into the national consciousness and then people talk about, which is great. You need somebody who's like a... I don't know, like a real revolutionary to get that implemented. I think he truly believed in his messaging was pretty consistent on the UBI concept coming to some sort of fruition under this imaginary Andrew Yang administration. But then as soon as he starts running for mayor of New York and he drops all of that language and adopts literally the Bloomberg playbook on how to run for mayor, the neoliberal playbook, it plummets in popularity because people aren't interested in Andrew Yang. They were interested in the UBI. They were interested in the information he was talking about, not yeah. who he was. As flawed as the whole concept of UBI is, because like we know capitalists, as long as they still exist, would just jack up the prices and stuff like that. But just that resonance on the level of wealth redistribution, right? That's what gets people. 
just to switch gears a little bit, because this is something I was thinking about as we were talking about like working class agency and everything like that. But uh, and something that seems relevant to talk about today with allies is the SAG strike with all these rich Hollywood people who I guess, again, like in a very strict sense, could be considered working class if they're, you know, if they don't have any extended businesses and things like that. If they're working for a studio or working for production companies, like if maybe they don't own the means of production necessarily. There's young working actors and there's writers that are trying. I mean, these these guys are shit. Yeah. A thousand percent, you know, and like that's the other thing that kind of gets obscured in this whole conversation is that like for, you know, all the representation of like the big A-list celebrities that are getting, you know, raising their voices in support of the strike. There's a ton of people that don't have that cachet, that don't have that money that are going to be impacted by this on both the writers and the actor side. Well, like these guys are, I guess, could be considered some of them, like even the rich ones working class by just purely their relationship to capital. We wouldn't think of them as working class because they don't live the working class experience, right? Because they have everything taken care of because they have money. But you're seeing some people like I saw the Ron Perlman video going around today, like Ron Perlman's fine. But like, here's a guy saying, like, I'll come fucking burn your house down for wanting to starve out like the fellow people in my union. The motherfucker who said we're going to keep this thing going until people start losing their houses and their apartments. Listen to me, motherfucker. There's a lot of ways to lose your house. Some of it is financial. Some of it is karma. And some of it is just figuring out who the fuck said that. And we know who said that. And where he fucking lives. There's a lot of ways to lose your house. You wish that on people. You wish that families starve while you're making 27 fucking million dollars a year for creating nothing. Be careful, motherfucker. Be really careful. Because that's the kind of shit that stirs shit up. Peace out. So, like, I don't know, maybe there is some space, especially as, like, the labor movement grows here. We still have a lot to observe and a lot to see as this plays out. But, like, maybe there are going to be some people that come out and, like, holy shit, glad to have them on our side on this issue, you know? Did he say that in reference to that that executive that was like, yes. make people lose their houses? Yeah, yes. Fuck that, dude. Yeah. Yeah. And based on Roman, do you think it would be like advantageous for the execs of these uh, movie companies to try to paint them as not working class at all? And yeah. do you think that like the people who are just dumb reactionaries who are doing this work for free might also take their hatred of elite Hollywood sickos and then definitely will take that same message and and put it out even further. And do you think maybe they also did the same thing when it came to athletes? And then that this like complication of the, the classes, you know, who is a laborer and who is an owner when the laborers themselves make sometimes millions of dollars, even though they are not owners of the means of production, even though they literally are sometimes sacrificing their bodies, if not just their time and their, you know, their energy. Yeah. They still are like, workers even if they don't feel like they fall in the same class as you and that's why once again it's usually useful to look at who actually owns the means of production rather than just fucking income levels if you want to talk about class isn't that weird yeah even to get beyond that and to talk about the actual averages of pay within sag aftra so on average a member makes approximately one hundred forty-four thousand dollars a year but taking us back to math class the median income of somebody at SAG Astra is less than $40,000. Yeah, and a lot of these people live in fucking California. Like, 
Yeah, I think there's 160,000 members of SAG. So probably 1%, I mean, maybe a little more than that, are the guys that everybody's like, fuck these rich actors. That makes up a tiny fucking percentage of these people. This isn't even to mention like that this is going on in conjunction with the writer's strike. And like these writers make shit. They make shit. They don't get royalties off of the things that continue to get used. One of the things that I saw was like the main bone of contention with like the actors thing was that like with the AI world, they wanted basically license to use their image generated via AI. And people were like, no, it's horrifying. Like, like, no, no. Well, and, and with the writers, it was like they want to use AI to generate a bunch of like generic scripts that these streaming companies can just put out 5,000 shows a year, right? I mean, yeah. just get rid of the writers and use AI to do that shit. So when we're talking about the SAG and writers strike together, when was the last time this happened? Because it has happened before. 1960. And it was when Reagan was the head of SAG. <laughs> the worst. <laughs> Reagan was the man that went up to bat for the working class. And to give credit where credit's due, he's the one that achieved most of the things that we consider as benefits that they're continuing to fight for. Concept of royalties, concept of medical care, things that are incredibly envious in the contracts that they currently have. And he only raped like three people while he did it. Let's not get sidetracked on the evils of Reagan. (laughs) But to make a larger point. See episode six with Nat. Although Marx predicates his argument on the equality of labor and capital in the market, This is a playing field which overwhelmingly favors capital in its exploitation of labor because of its willingness and ability to use force. We see today, July 15th, 2023, that SAG is using force and UPS is threatening to use force to change the situation and the media is already ramping up their vilification of the Teamsters and is well on their way to vilifying SAG. On page 348 through 349, we get to one of the major reasons the modest regulations have been put in place during Marx's time, military preparedness. The sovereignty of one European nation might be threatened by another if the physical conditions of their population fell into a sharp decline. Marx wrote, quote, Berlin in 1858 could not provide its contingency of recruits because of physical deficiencies in military-aged men. Marx also makes reference to powerful landed elites in the British government who used, when convenient, the plight of the working class as a means to leverage their waning influence against the rising power of the liberal capitalists. Finally, British progressives, Charles Dickens may be the most well-known, waged moral campaigns to instill paternalistic sentiments among the capitalist class meant to push the government to limit the excesses of unfettered capitalism. All of this is to note Marx sees a clear benefit to the working class in taking advantage of these schisms within the ruling class. But what are their limits? As mentioned, Marx seems to argue the working class is indebted to the work of factory inspectors. And that was in the previous chapter. Does this mean he sees bourgeois reformism as a necessary reality to empowering a working class movement? Or is this specific to the English example? Thinking practically... Are there schisms in the current zeitgeist which the SAG strike or the impending UPS strike might take advantage of when making their case to the public at large? And should we really be buying into it? Or is Fran Drescher really just the next Ronald Reagan? (laughs) (laughs) There is this idea of the quote-unquote elites being bad, right? 
And if the UPS, I'm going to use them specifically, or, you know, and hopefully SAG can do something too. But if they can navigate the public relations field effectively to just make it explicit that the elites are just like the owners of UPS, the board of directors of UPS. And, you know, you can apply that to every other problem that you can think of. I think that could be very effective, right? In terms of not only their struggle, but raising class consciousness. Now, what I think they're going to have to contend with, and as we talk about the problems that working class agency and consciousness encounters in a place like this, or really anywhere where capital dominates, it's like the media is always going to try to individualize the problem. It's like, yeah, they're taking on the elites, but your delivery is going to be impacted, Mr. Consumer. You're not going to get what you need. Kids aren't going to get their medicine delivered or whatever it would be. But to totally take people's eyes off the ball of like, hey, this is a working class struggle against the capitalist elites. So there is this language of elites and fighting against elites out there that hopefully one of these things can take advantage of. Right. But can they do it? I think to just make a quick point, if you actually listen to Fran Drescher's statement on the position of SAG. It's incredible. She was pretty good. How they plead poverty, that they're losing money left and right when giving hundreds of millions of dollars to their CEOs. It is disgusting. Shame on them. They stand on the wrong side of history at this very moment. We stand in solidarity, in unprecedented unity, our union and our sister unions and the unions around the world are standing by us as well as other labor unions. Because at some point, the jig is up. You cannot keep being dwindled and marginalized and disrespected and dishonored. If we don't stand tall right now, we are all going to be in trouble. She understands what the argument is going to be, and she hits all of the right points. Of course, she doesn't do it in a way that we would 100% agree with, but that in itself is kind of what I'm getting at. It's easy for the bourgeois to take on that language, but not make the larger connections. And I think we as a podcast have been good about recognizing when people we don't recognize are hitting on those messages. Because it's important to get that message across in a landscape where it's never going to be heard. I mean, how many people heard that Fran Drescher statement compared to the entire listening population of all of our podcast episodes put together? Way, way more. Ouch. <laughs> ouch, dude, ouch. I'm not ripping on Fran Drescher. Zionism aside. That's a big aside, but yeah. <laughs> She's good on this like particular thing, right? But that, that goes back to the point of like where a lot of people are going to hear that and they're like, oh, yeah, I get it. And then what do you do with it? Where do you go? Is there an institution or an or organization to kind of like further you on with that? Or do you just agree with it in that moment and then you move on with your life, you know? And I think that's the huge problem. And this is just going to turn into another fucking like soundbite on Instagram or TikTok or whatever it is that people are not going to think about in like literally like a, two weeks, maybe a week. 
two days. But how do you establish that like working class solidarity to continue to support that movement, support UPS and understand that these struggles are linked rather than just consuming a soundbite and moving on again? Because that's what everybody does right now. And I'm not even making a judgment call because I'm guilty of it as well. (laughs) You know, we've been mentioning this a few times, this idea of elites and boogeymen within these movements within the union being ostracized as being radical, even though we recognize them as something other than radical. So Marx highlights this sort of ironic detachment by the manufacturers on page 396 to 397, quote, they denounced the factory inspector as a species of revolutionary commissioner reminiscent of the French Revolutionary Convention, that convention which presided over the terror who would ruthlessly sacrifice the unfortunate factory workers to his mania for improving the world, end quote. Well, Marx doesn't explicitly write in capital that the inspectors are revolutionary, he clearly understands that they're not, right? He's just pointing out the fact that even these incredibly stodgy bureaucrats put in place by the ruling class are going to be tarred and feathered within the media of that time as revolutionary dangers, as the elites. I mean, it's just incredible how much doesn't change. Idealist leftist regulators of the factories, they just want some utopian world where (laughs) you could have like a safe factory where workers are respected and treated as human beings, which is like, you know, you know, grow up liberal. (laughs) You can't have a factory that treats people as human beings and doesn't kill them (laughs) every day. Yeah. It's like these people don't have to be revolutionary minded to be acting in a way that furthers revolutionary aspirations, if that makes any sense. They may just be doing something which they think on like a very idealistic level is morally right. But then again, it opens up that space for the progression of a revolutionary movement where people just have time. So like if their aim is not to have the revolution, like if ultimately the material condition that results as a the outcome of their work opens up that space for organizing and learning and class consciousness. It doesn't matter whether that person as an individual identified as revolutionary. It was just kind of like this process within the system that opened up that space that matters. I think that Marx talks about this in the chapter. And like, so these inspectors were like a concession by capital, right? To, to, to try and protect these acts that they put into to shorten the workday. But I think he yeah. talks about at least one case where it didn't really matter what they said. Nothing really got, and, and if it went to a tribunal, what did it, he said like one of a hundred and whatever many cases actually got found guilty, the, the owners of the factory. So they all got let off because I think the one example he uses, like the owner of the factory or the owner of a sister factory is on the, he's one of the judges. So it doesn't matter. So, I mean, I think that could further revolutionary thought, right? Because the workers could be there thinking like, okay, the government's given us these inspectors are going to protect us. But then when it comes right down to it, they're like, well, shit, we have these inspectors. They have no power. Nothing's improved for us. We're still having the system where he was moving kids back and forth. I just talking about like the relay system or whatever. Yeah. That's not changed. We're still working 12 hours when we're only supposed to be working eight. I think that could further revolutionize a worker. Again, it doesn't, I'm not talking about the inspector, but it could, it could further a process there. 100%. I think it's just like one more generation until everybody figures out what regulatory capture is on a mass scale. Then we got it in the bag, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get it. 
Nothing new under the fucking capital sun. <laughs> Dude, like, it's just we like, always think like revolution's right around the corner as soon as everybody figures out how fucked up shit is. It's like, oh no, it's been this way the whole time. Like shit. <laughs> so to build off of what Steve was saying, Mark cites heavily from the historical record rather than building any theoretical arguments in this chapter to point out the deficits of capitalism in practice. For instance, he writes on page 352, quote, the profit to be gained by it overworking a violation of the Factory Act of 1850 appears to be, to many, a greater temptation than they can resist, leading the capitalists to make, quote, small thefts of capital from their workers during their meal times and recreation times. So here Marx is recognizing, as Steve noted, that even when these laws are in place, they're either flagrantly broken because the fines are minuscule, or they're not even enforced at all. So Marx even recognizes this in his time. So what is even the point of trying to get these laws that he's calling for actively if they're not going to be enforced? And I know that fines and laws and regulations are being put on the railroads and the airlines by Pete Buttigieg, but we've really got nobody else on our side in the Biden administration. It's really <laughs> holding people to task. Good thing his uh, brain is strong enough for everyone. I'm thinking about this question as it relates to climate change, as we, you know, as we talk about it right now, because there's so many instances of like environmental abuse or just, you know, action on climate change ostensibly where it's still profitable for the company to just break that law and absorb that fine and continue doing business as usual. Again, it's one of those scenarios where it's like, if you're identifying this as a problem to you and your life, in your existence, like whether that's like running your kid through the relay system or like continuing to, you know, further the destruction of the planet, you can just say like, hey, this, this system, it's, it's not doing it. It's not working. We're talking about it's just not profitable for these companies. And it's actually like, OK, for them still to incur the minimal fines that our government throws at them to continue to destroy the planet. I don't know what's going to radicalize you if not that. It's as though we're sort of betting on the fact that the terms and the consequences have gotten so great that people will finally wake up now. Even though Marx was seeing that people weren't back then. Yeah. Follow up on that, Nick. I mean, there's a guy who goes to the gym that we go to, and he definitely does not have our political beliefs. He's, he's a liberal. But, you know, him and I were talking on Friday morning just about, I've just got back to the gym after my surgery and everything. And we, we were just talking about like how I generally kind of feel like shit and trying to get back in shape. And this guy again is a liberal, but he said, and he's talking about this from a health perspective, but I think it kind of applies. He's like, he said, nothing is worse for your health than the American working day because you're sat at a computer for 10 hours a day, slouched over, but People are getting to our way of thinking, even if they don't realize it, without doing any of the work yeah. that we do. They're, they're Class consciousness, yeah. People realize that this way of living, like it is terrible for your health. It is terrible for your mental health, for every general health, everything. And I think normal people are starting to realize that. You still have the people that think, like you were talking about, Nick, you, you should work 80 hours a day. But I think that's getting less to Levi's point earlier. And I think people are starting to realize like something has to change or the whole population of this country is just going to become sicker, die younger, 
everything that Marx was talking about in this chapter, if if nothing was done through regulation, but you know, and just in general, I I think there's an awakening of someone, which is a stupid word, but you know what I I think you guys know what I mean. To pull RFK real quick, our country, you know, has a form of kind of chronic inflammation, spiritually, mentally, emotionally. We need to start healing ourselves. <laughs> oh no. I need my arnica, bro. <laughs> to sort of play with what Steve was just saying there, I think that's what E.P. Thompson was writing against. So I had this conversation with Nick talking about why Thompson was a controversial figure in his day. And a large part of it was that he was arguing against the notion within some communist circles that he had schism with that the working class was waking up and the revolution was inevitable. He would have argued against that, saying that the working class doesn't gain its consciousness due to its material conditions. It gains its consciousness due to acting against those material conditions. And that's to say that just because people are getting upset and getting fed up with the conditions that they're working in doesn't mean that they're inevitably going to go towards the left. It's a very easy thing to say that takes away agency from the working class in a very ironic sort of way because they actually need to take action for their own class interest. It doesn't just happen. It never just happens. If we let it just happen, the fascists win because they are not going to sit back. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's why like, I think it's good to have those conversations. Why I think we kind of have to be like annoying pains in the ass about like being out front with like our, with our politics. Like this is why you're feeling this way. Here's what I think we can do with that. And I'm going to continue to be annoying about it. And like, I know I'm a pain in the ass. I'm a pain in the ass to my family and my friends. I just am. But like, I see no other option. <laughs> Doesn't it suck to just not have that self-control? Like, Literally, I started a meme page and called it Turn Leftist because I was like, I feel like most people are Marxist and they just don't realize it yet. I'll post a bunch of liberal things that generally guide people into like Marxism, right? It took like five minutes and I was just like, no, USSR is great. Stalin's awesome. Like, I have no self-control. Like, I still, that is my core thesis. Like, I really think that class consciousness is there. But Levi, you're making the better point, which is that you could be a Marxist in your head and a liberal in real life if you don't get out there and organize. If you don't actually do anything... You're still just as good as the guy who says, like, the American working day sucks, but here I am doing it. At a minimum, educating yourself and trying to educate others. Not everybody has to be like an organizer, but like, I think you should be agitating. So that's a really good point to wrap up on, but I would be at a failure to not mention chapter 11 at least once. The dehumanizing cycle of living labor, the worker brings to life the dead labor or constant capital of the means of production, creating self-valorizing value, which in turn unleashes boundless energy, activity, and production to the benefits of the capitalist class, which also crafts a gilded gauge for the capitalist. Marx doesn't write much on this in chapter 11, but he does conclude the chapter with a fascinating anecdote of a Scottish capitalist. The Scotch capitalist complained that the limit of the working day would inherently devalue his means of production. Marx points out, quote, This West of Scotland bourgeois brain, which has inherited the capitalist qualities of four generations, has fetishized the means of production themselves as containing value rather than the value being produced by labor. Funny enough, we see Marx denigrating a Scotch factory inspector who supports this view by writing he, 
quote, unlike the English factory inspectors, is a complete prisoner of the capitalist mode of thought, end quote. Though he had near effervescent praise for the factory inspector in previous chapter, chapter 10, Marx believes they can even fall victim to the capitalist mode of thought. But this leads me to think about who else can fall victim to this prison. In addition to the capitalist and the professional classes, does this include the working class itself? How do we, as socialists, free these prisoners? How do you reach the, the Andrew Tate hustle culture fans? Yeah, I mean, with them specifically, it's like, how do you get them to see that, like, they're perpetuating the quote-unquote matrix? Literally are the matrix, bro. <laughs> yeah, like, the consumerism and everything, like, the patriarchal norms that just infect the society. How do you get them to see that, like, you're really not doing anything to change this? And again, it comes down to, like, individualism, right? Because, like, that is all predicated upon me, you, just escaping that. But everybody else can, you know, fuck off because I've got mine. No one's ever thought of that before. No one's ever thought of, wow, fuck you, I got mine. That's crazy. So, I mean, and this is what we were kind of talking about, isn't it? So you have, like, a working class existence. And that can fall on multiple level of strata. And I think there are some strata, like the professional managerial class. I think those people are still, they're still working class in terms of a relationship to production, but they are susceptible to falling it, especially into like the petty bourgeois brain of reformism or just like flying a flag to feel good about your liberal politics that I, I'm okay because I believe this, but I don't want anything to change fundamentally. But like, how do you reach those people, right? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> because those people have bought into the capitalist ideology, especially like in our context, like the American imperialist fucking capitalist ideology. And do you start talking about imperialism and the war machine? Okay, like this takes away from investment in our society on the whole. I, I don't know. I, I haven't found the best approach, and I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all approach anyway. I completely agree, but... I just think back to E.P. Thompson and the way that he attempted to capture that mindset and change the minds of the people that he was trying to reach. So he writes these histories and he writes history in order to empower the people that are most capable of forming movements themselves by showing them that the past, it's not entirely known, that there were lots of moments throughout time where things could have ended dramatically different. Had contingencies moved in different directions? had certain things not happened in certain ways. And that to me is just really powerful. And to make a, a sort of different comparison to something we were speaking about before, like I'm not going to bat for Fran Drescher, but I will definitely share that with people that are interested in learning about what it actually looks like to criticize the structures of capitalism in language that people can actually relate to. Yeah, 100%. It's not that she's providing an alternative worldview. I imagine she's still a reformist. I mean, prove me wrong. I'm totally cool supporting her if she's willing to go for it. But I do think it, it actually reaches people. It's important to give people a imagination of something different. Yeah, I think there is something like, especially when you talk about in your like personal lives, like really trying to like not preach at somebody, but like understand where they're coming from. Like I use the example of my little brother who's like getting involved in a union, you know, and he, I can fucking tell 
he's getting class conscious, you know, through this stuff and he's going down the right path. And like he talks to me about people in his union and he's like, man, they, they, they're so good against the bosses and things like that. And he goes, but I still see them talking about voting for someone like Trump or Ron DeSantis. And he's like, I just don't get that. Right. So I'm like feeding him like fucking like Howard Zinn working class history kind of shit podcasts. We've done podcasts, you know, you know, everybody else has done because I think like U.S. working class history stuff, which there's a lot there that'll help him, you know, so there is something. To get. And Steve, you're good at approaching people like this. So I'd be interested in what you have to say. I mean, you had a role in like freaking bringing me along as well. I think I'm a little more subtle than maybe Mike with the just <laughs> stolen rules. Yeah, also, fuck liberals like right away. Like, what am I doing? Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was definitely a little more offensive when I was in England this time, but that's because I was drunk half the time. But, um, I think it's tough. I mean, I, yeah, it's definitely a case by case thing. And I used to be pretty good about listening to everybody. And I, I think I've made the point on our podcast a lot that you shouldn't just isolate yourself with just people that agree with you. You should be friends with or interact with all, all different types of people. I think my job makes me be a little more nuanced in talking about my beliefs. But um, even with my friends, like found it difficult with certain people this time who were totally obsessed with money and material things and, and just their material life. Um, I found it harder finding some middle ground with them, but I think that you just have to find something in common with someone and then start the conversation there and then just go from then. I mean, like, I don't know how long we knew each other before we started talking about politics, Nick, but it was, it was a while. I wasn't trying to force my views on you, <laughs> on you immediately, which is a difficult thing. And, and I think that it's sometimes a bad thing because it takes a long time. And if you're too patient, then you're not going to change anybody. And I think I've become a little more forceful in, in recent years as I've become more radicalized. There's no one way to do it. You have to know someone's personality and be able to just find something that you agree with. My in-laws, they're MAGA people. But then I talk to them and a lot of them are libertarians. And you know, one guy was telling me like how he should just be left alone and no one should tell him what to do. And I was like, well, what do you think about people in China? Shouldn't, why do we hate them so much? Shouldn't they just be left alone to do what they want to do? And he was like, you know, that's a really <laughs> good idea. That I've never thought of. Imagine that. <laughs> we, maybe we shouldn't give them freedom and democracy. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's tough. And I don't think I've answered your question. In complete agreement with Steve, whose approach I hope I'm executing on some level and building off of what Mike said earlier and Nick has built on as well. People are becoming fed up and looking for answers, and we need to meet them where they are, or else the conservative movement will meet them there, because that movement is way more comfortable using the language of conformity and language they're used to hearing in order to pull them further into their direction. We need to be willing to understand how to communicate in ways that aren't off-putting. Not to say that there's not a place for talking about, I don't know, Stalin's belt buckles. You're red. But still, we need to ease it into there we can't start there it doesn't work yeah or it works for a very select number of people that were already almost there yeah and i think that's to my point of talking to other people like that's a trap you can fall into if you just stay within your like-minded echo chamber whatever you want to call it you just think everyone agrees with you if you don't talk to other people then you don't realize that there's a shit ton of people out there that do not agree with us and those are the people that we have to at least move more in our direction and try and radicalize a little bit. It's difficult to get people who are like conservatives to 
to agree with us, but it it's possible to get them to be more on our side. My father was a, you know, he supported Thatcher, very different to the rest of my family, and now he's a socialist. So it does happen to people, but I, I think that's, that's more rare. We just have to try and get them to be on our side more in, in, in little increments and, and just, you know, unfortunately that takes a lot of time. It's not that they completely disagree with us. It's that they don't understand the terms in which they actually do agree with us. Yeah, it's, yeah well put. Something that we fall into sometimes, I think, is like we refer to like the working class, right? And that is like a material condition that people share some similar experiences, right? Like there are bounds that kind of describe what that existence looks like. But when you get to talking to these people, members of your class, it's not homogenous in the sense of like, oh, like this is the working class. People are very different. So it just speaks to, I think, where you need to try to figure out what approach is going to work here. My brother focusing in on the union stuff with my mother. She's very religious and I try to focus in on like some of like the more populist and like socialist messaging that you can try to glean from Jesus. And it makes your job really hard because you got to know a ton and you got to be able to relate to people in a lot of different ways. And the other thing is, it's like there's some people you're just not going to you're just not going to reach. And I think the other part is like just kind of realizing sometimes it's like I'm not going to reach this person. Maybe somebody else can, but it's not going to be me that actually breaks through here. So it's fucking hard. I guess is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) (laughs) To be on the left is to understand that you're fighting with your hands tied behind your back because you're arguing against an entire system that's structured people's lives for years, for decades, for centuries at this point. So you always have to know how to strike effectively. And I mean, if that's not guerrilla history, if that's not guerrilla action, I I don't know what is. I think we can leave it there. Mike, thanks for joining, man. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Surprisingly fun to talk about fucking Das Capital. <laughs> These episodes do really well for both of us. So I'm like glad, you know. People see that in like Das Capital and they just immediately hit skip, or at least that's what I was expecting people to do. But no, it like did really well, surprisingly. Feels good. And Levi, thanks so much for like, you know, you do the legwork. Hopefully, this is doing something for everyone listening. You know, you could do more by continuing to share it you know if there's something that thing that comes up that you think will speak to somebody like just share it around like that's the point find out what you can do in your community because you know as bleak as it is and there's nothing left to do but continue to fight we fight to the end we fight to the end that's how it's got to be thanks for listening we'll see you next time stay strong out there thank you guys thank you adios paisanos see what you're made of, so they can know how to fight.